Just a few minutes ago, we heard Isaiah chapter 11, this extraordinary vision of a future that's free from violence and bias and war, a future where we live on this earth with genuine security and safety, no threats, no injustice, no vulnerability. This is a foundational vision for Christianity. It, it sits right at the center of the Christian religion. And notice, it's not simply a hope beyond the world. It's hope for the world. That God will make everything right. One day, there will be, and you can feel it in this passage, a cosmic sigh of relief. We hear it from the lambs and the wolves, and it's what we've all been waiting for. Let's look together at this remarkable vision, Isaiah chapter 11, and let's just take a few minutes to walk through it. Verse one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, to really get what's going on here, it, it helps to have read all the pages before this. We won't do that right this second. But when you read the book of Isaiah from the beginning, you see that Israel has been utterly let down by its government. Its government has been corrupt and inept. Israel's a monarchy. They're ruled by a king. The king comes from the house of David. And this royal family started out pretty good. But as time went by, David's successors, his offspring, proved more and more of a disappointment. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. This is just an example. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So over and over in the book of Isaiah, we've learned that Israel's leaders have failed. The entire system of justice in Israel has just gone to the dogs. The land is filled with violence and oppression and murder, and it's because the rulers are failing at their jobs. The rulers are abusing the very ones they're supposed to be protecting. The people with authority are preying on the weak rather than protecting them. They are taking advantage of strangers rather than welcoming them, and God knows it. He hears the cry, the pain, the cry of the people who are being treated unfairly and oppressively, and so Isaiah, this prophet of God, he's taking a firm stance, a public stance against the government, against the royal house, and through Isaiah, God is warning the government leaders to repent or God will cut them down. That's the beginning chapters. They don't repent. So God uses the nation of Assyria, 
like an axe to cut down the government of Israel. So when you get to chapter 11 and it starts with a stump, this is Israel. All that remains after God's judgment is a stump. And we learn in chapter 11, verse 1, that God is going to raise up a new king. And this king is going to be different than the yahoos that have been messing up the country. Look at verse 2. This king, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and discernment, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He's going to have these incredible gifts that are necessary to govern well. Real gifts for real governing. Real gifts for exercising authority in the kind of way that cuts through all the clutter, all the corruption, all the greed and the deceit that cuts through all the inefficiencies. Look in the middle of verse three. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. You see, in the house of David, king after king had failed, whether by character or by character defect, or just by a bad um, capacity for government. But in this new king, his character and his abilities will be in harmony. This new king is capable of recognizing the real issues and designing effective remedies. Look at verse four, this king, this leader, the primary way he's going to govern is through justice. Look at verse four. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Remember what we read back in chapter one. We read about the government, the leaders of Israel who failed to judge the fatherless and the widow to correct oppression when it surfaced. And here God has given very specific instructions to his people that that's what government is supposed to do. Government is supposed to protect the poor, the helpless, and the outcast. In scripture, we learn that the authority of government resides in its, its practice of judging. Proverbs chapter 29, verse four, we're told, by justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Proverbs 29, verse 14, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. God judges nations based on how they protect, defend, support the poor. So back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, God is promising Israel that one day he will raise up a king in whose hands the concerns of the weakest will be safe. Look at verse 6. Look what happens when this king judges in this way, when he has this kind of character and this kind of reign, 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. So this king will say no to everything that stands against the good, the true, and the beautiful. And he will say yes to the world itself in all of its fullness. Listen again to that first line, verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. That word dwell. In Hebrew, it's ger. So if you can say ger, you can talk in Hebrew. <laughs> it's an amazing word in the Bible. Hebrew is about the language the Old Testament was written in. It's the word for sojourner. It means to be a stranger. It's the word for being a stranger who is welcomed and protected by the sacred rules of hospitality. And this word in the Bible is used of the foreigner, the immigrant, the person whose survival in a foreign land depends on the goodwill of the citizens. This is the undocumented person. Now, think about this. Can you see this remarkable image in your mind? The lamb is calling out to the wolf, come, be welcomed. That's a reversal, right? I'm sure you've imagined the wolf calling out to the lamb, oh, come stay with me. Let's have dinner, <laughs> right? But here it's the lamb calling out to the wolf. It's the image of the strong becoming dependent on the weak. The wild animals are guests of the domesticated animals. Jump down to verse nine. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. God is inviting us in Isaiah 11 to imagine the end of evil. Can you do that? Can you imagine the end of evil? Can you imagine this world when evil is no more? To imagine this world healed, this earth a beautiful healing community, to envisage this world vibrant with life and energy, incorruptible, beyond the reach of death and decay. Hold that in our mind's eye. Hold in your mind's eye, your imagination, the world reborn, set free from the slavery of corruption, free to be truly what it was made to be. Violence abolished. The weak will have no need to fear the powerful any longer because the powerful will be kept within their bounds and the weak ones will know where protection can be found. The harmless ones will no longer fall victim to the deceitful because the deceitful ones will no longer have an opportunity to trick and to scheme. The harmless ones will have advocates who will be positioned like a protective rampart for, for their innocence. The world will be at such peace. The weakest ones will offer up to the most powerful. Come near to me. I'm not afraid of you. And yes, Tyler Childers, our beloved hounds and beagles will be there. I'm not sure about cats. 
Notice the second half of verse 9. Notice the prerequisite for this piece is knowing Yahweh. It's translated in most English Bibles that are modern, the knowledge of the Lord. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. But that's, that's a tricky translation because this word knowledge in Hebrew, in the original, it's an infinitive construct. It's a verbal noun. It is a noun, knowledge, but it's a noun that's got action going on inside of it. So maybe a better translation would be something like the earth shall be full of the knowing of Yahweh. Everywhere you go, people will be knowing God. The creatures will be knowing God. Now, When we get to verse 10, it says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This peace in nature, this peace at a global international level, it happens because of God's righteous king who rules with justice. Now, who is this king? It's Jesus. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8, this beautiful poem. It's it's a poem in two stanzas. Stanza 1 is verse 6. Stanza 2 is verses 7 and 8. Let's just look at it for just a minute. In verse 6, in the first stanza, you have three animal pairs climaxing with a young child who leads them. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Seven animals. A link back to creation. Led by a new Adam who leads the beasts and maintains peace. The second stanza. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Seven animals again. And this time the new Adam, better than the original Adam, is capable of playing near the snake and not being bit or tricked. What unites the wild and domestic, the, the, the predator and the prey in both stanzas is the young child. And the young child will reconcile antagonists because of his power over the snake. This is Jesus. Listen to the last phrase. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus is the desire of the nations. He's what the nations of the world long for. Peace, justice, freedom, a voice and a vote which will count health and around and above all of these love and the real satisfaction of the hungers of the heart, a hunger which no amount of money or fine houses or fast cars or luxury vacations or love affairs will ever reach. In verse 10, we see all the nations streaming to King Jesus. They are not bowing down before a power, but before a person, God himself in the flesh, a leader of human beings who is the fulfillment of their story. And what is it that the nations are inquiring about? They're not asking questions of law. This is deeper. They, Jesus is what they are inquiring about. Jesus is what they've always longed for. He is the desire of the nations. Isaiah 11 is a vision of this world as it should be. All 
will be well. Violence abolished. Peace at last. A world filled with justice and joy and beauty. And the way this is accomplished is by God setting Jesus in charge of it all. Now, how do we live in the light of this kind of vision? How can we walk in the light of this vision? Four ways. First, we must imagine it. Second, we must pray for it. Third, we must work for it. And fourth, we must do our politics for it. First of all, we need to imagine this. We need to learn to see the future as it will be. And that requires imagination. It takes a lot of imagination to think what this will be like. It's our imagination that takes us around the corner when we can't actually see around the corner. It's imagination that takes us down the road farther than we can see down the road. It's imagination that takes us over the sea. We need to learn to imagine a world without evil. How can we do that? How can we believe in the impossible possibility of a new creation? How can we really believe that the coming king will not only do what the world thinks is possible, but will also do what the world has long since declared to be impossible? How can we really, really believe that there is coming a time when our bodies will not grow old? How can we believe that? How can we imagine a physical reality without decay? How can we believe that the old practice of the big ones eating the little ones is not the wave of the future? To believe it, we have to first imagine it. And for that, we need help. To imagine something so impossible, we need help. Because our imaginations have been shrunken and starved by centuries of ugly church buildings. Our imaginations have been shrunken and starved by the long winter of secularism, both in the culture and in the church. And so we need artists. We need poets and novelists and writers and painters and sculptors and playwrights and filmmakers and musicians and fashion designers and interior designers. They are the source of imagination. They cultivate the landscape and the architecture of what we can imagine to be true. And we cannot believe what we cannot imagine. There was a time when Christianity was flourishing in the West and the best art being produced was being produced in the church. It is not a coincidence that neither of those things are the case today. Christian artists need to lead the way beyond the sterility, beyond the brutalism, beyond the vacuousness and the skepticism, beyond the dead ends of cynicism and ugliness that are so characteristic of modern art. 
We need Christian artists to rescue us, to rescue our imaginations, to help us to imagine in the midst of the present evil age, to imagine the end of evil. Part of the calling of God for artists, God calls artists to the unique vocation of enabling us to see what we can't see. To see that this world, for all of its brokenness, is full of the glory of God. And there is yet to be a fuller fullness, a beauty in which the ugliness of this world will be redeemed, in which the violence is rebuked, in which the possibilities of this world are finally fulfilled. Our culture is not good at imagining that. And it takes the arts to help us do it. Music and poetry, literature, dance, drama, we need it all. Artists, you are God's gift to the church. We desperately need you to help us imagine an age in which not only is evil gone, but every vestige of evil is gone. Every memory of evil is gone. Every whiff is gone. Art at its best not only draws attention to the way things are, but to the way things are meant to be. And by God's grace, the way things will be when Christ returns and the earth is filled with the knowing of Yahweh as waters cover the sea. When we read Isaiah 11, we need to imagine it. And we need artists to help us. Second, we need to pray. Prayer is key. This is what we see in Psalm 72. It's what we did a few minutes ago when we prayed that great psalm together. So remember what we prayed? Psalm 72 verse 1, give the king your justice. Do you pray that? We need to pray that for our government. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. We must pray this for our government, for our city leaders. Isaiah 11 is just one of many places in the Bible where we see that Christianity cannot be reduced to personal private salvation. The point of the Bible is not life after death in some spiritualized sense. If that was the case, the vision would actually collude with death rather than overcoming it. When we think of a world unreachable by decay, by death, here in the West, we too often think of something non-physical. But Isaiah's vision is physical. He's holding up here this earth, incorruptible, unkillable. New creation is what matters. A new kind of world with a new kind of physicality. God's new world is the reality toward which all of the beauty and the power in the present world are signposts. Being a Christian is not about sitting back and, and, and enjoying spiritual comforts in a private, relaxed, easygoing kind of way. It's about the unending struggle in the mystery of prayer, the struggle to bring God's wise healing order into the world now. It's by praying that we implement the victory of the cross and anticipate the renewal of all things. In prayer, we become truly human. 
So we need Isaiah 11. We need to imagine it and we need to pray for it. And third, we need to work for it. We need to labor for God's kingdom. We need to get to work in our community and find the places where those without money and power can't secure justice. Like prayer, working for justice is a primary Christian calling. Every single one of us has got to be laboring for justice. That's a primary Christian calling. The cry for justice in the world must be taken up by the church. So we need to learn to imagine the remarkable renewal of all things. We need to pray for it. We need to work for it. And finally, we have to be political about it. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells us all authority in heaven and on earth has been entrusted to him. All authorities are accountable to King Jesus. And the church needs to hold all authorities accountable to that responsibility. This should be the most political place that you're ever in. Because we serve a king. A king. Now look, there, this is complicated. The Democrats in the room, you need to find out how to do that in a Democrat kind of way. The Republicans in the room, you need to find out how to do that in a Republican kind of way. And you need to debate with each other here. If we don't debate with each other here, if we leave, if we leave politics out of here, how can Isaiah 11 ever be? Isaiah 11 is about justice. It's about economics. We have to figure out how to connect our Christianity to our politics. A fundamental job of government in the Bible is to ensure the vulnerable get fair treatment. Democrats, ask your Republican friends how their approach does that and then listen believing that they're not liars and that they're not dumb. And Republicans, ask your Democrat friends, how is your approach going to achieve this? And believe that they're not liars and that they're not dumb. And let's bring our best approaches to this. And because we are all filled with the same spirit, saved by the same Lord Jesus, secured by him, we can listen to one another in safety. This, this in Isaiah 11 verse four, it says that word poor, this is about social status. In the Bible, this word describes people who because of their social status find themselves in circumstances of diminished ability, power, and work. It's a word that describes the socially disadvantaged, people with no influence, the ones to whom we must pay attention. We must speak the truth to our president, to our government to our mayor, to our city council. And we must learn to practice politics like Christians. Now, today is the second Sunday of Advent. The four weeks leading up to Christmas and our society wants us to skip Advent. It wants us to have churches that don't talk about politics. It wants us to jump straight to the Hallmark movies with the hot chocolate and the happy endings. 
But Advent is a season for reminding ourselves that this world is a place of violence and destruction and terror and shame and fear. And Advent is a time when we look this irreparably damaged world full in the face. And while holding that pain, we receive the extraordinary vision of Isaiah 11, a world healed by the love of God, a world in which the lion and the lamb will lay down together, a world in which there will be peace at all levels, peace between humans, peace between animals, peace between nations, reconciliation shot right through the whole cosmos, the world filled with the glory of God like waters cover the seas. Let's pray.